0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me as we continue. Lord, the things that we have even already been challenged with today are we, we sense the need to be reminded of persevering faith Hearts that walk out our circumstances with confidence, with with joy. Hearts and minds that rise above the difficulties, the things that would bring us low, the things that would cause our faith to waver or to stumble. That would rob us of our joy and our peace and our comfort. And yet, as we've been reminded, this has been the lot of your people in in every generation. It is very much true that we live in the easiest period in human history. The poorest among us have lives that are better than many who were well off. In past centuries, the comforts that we have, the ease of our life, and Father, even as we consider Noah today and what you required of him, how he testifies of a life of faith, and how he even looks to the one Who was to come. Father, you have called us to walk out our lives and meet the circumstances of life with all hope and joy and peace in believing. As Cliff said, you don't promise us to remove our difficulties. You promise us that if we will walk with you, that you will sanctify those difficulties and that you will transform the way that we view them. We will be made strong and resolute and even amazingly find a joy and an encouragement that we could not otherwise find. So, Father, I pray even as we live in a time where at least as it meets our eyes, the the ease and the comfort of the American way of life seem to be in jeopardy. It's easy for us to become fearful. It's easy for us to become distraught. It's easy for us to feel the need to, to flee, to hide, to protect ourselves. I pray that just as Noah in his day, just as Abraham in his day, just as all of the faithful who have gone before us, that we would meet the challenges, the opportunities, the seasons of our time with the mind of Christ, with joy, with resolute faith. Father, I too ask that you would attend to this time, that you would teach us, Not just in a way that we learn new information, but in a way that we are transformed by your Spirit. In a way that there is a renewing of our minds, a strengthening of our faith, an emboldening of our hope. Father, minister to us according to each one's need, each one's faith, each one's understanding. And by your good spirit, build us up in all things into Christ, who is the head. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. As we continue in Hebrews 11, this morning we come to Noah as the third in the writer's list of faithful forefathers. And uh, that's very much in keeping with the Genesis account. Uh, as we look at the way Genesis builds its case and, and, and begins to flesh out the salvation history, we, it becomes very evident, I think, why Noah comes next in the account, uh, as the writer particularly is tracing out Seth's line from Adam. I, I, I said last time that the book of Genesis is really structured around ten generations, sections, beginning with the heavens and the earth and then turning to uh, the human creature who is the point of reference and oversight, governance, uh, God's own lordship over the works of his hands. Uh, So at the first generation section is the heavens and the earth, then it's the generations of Adam. But specifically tracing out Adam's genealogy through the son Seth. There were the two lines that came out of Adam, Seth and Cain. And the scripture in tracing Adam's genealogy doesn't really deal with Cain. Cain is addressed going up to his high point of rebellion in Lamech, the seventh from Cain. But Adam's line in Genesis 5 focuses on the line of descent through Seth, the line of the faithful remnant of men. And it's in that context that we find uh, Noah appearing in in the text. he really represents the apex of Adam's generation section, the line of descent of Adam through Seth. Noah is the apex of that so as the as Adam's line of descent is the first generation section to deal with mankind, so the climax of that line as far as the the account of Genesis goes you know at this point uh, is Noah himself singled out and then Noah's own life circumstance is set in the middle of his own generation section it goes from the generations of the heavens and the earth to the generations of Adam to the generations of Noah but Noah's own historical uh, circumstance the the narrative that deals with Noah and his life is the focal point of his own generation section so it's not just so-and-so beget so-and-so so-and-so beget so-and-so although that is woven into into it but the heart of the generation section of Noah is the circumstance of his own life and we'll be looking at this through, uh, through again, Genesis 5 through 9. So, as I said last time, it's very important that as we consider these men, these individuals that the author of Hebrews is dealing with, that we deal with them in their own context, in the way that the scripture presents them, in the role that they serve in their own context. Time uh, in the developing, the fleshing out of the salvation history and the accomplishing of God's work. This isn't just the author putting together an arbitrary list of of good guys, you know, faithful individuals to make a case that it's important to have faith and God's pleased with faith. He's building his case in the way that the Scripture itself builds its case, and Noah fits very much into the center of that. So he introduces Noah, and and this is all by way of introduction. We'll we'll read this section in a second. But but Noah is introduced as a man who has a faith that very much echoes the faith of Abel and the faith of Enoch. It's said also of him that he walked with God in the way that we discussed last time as it was said of Enoch. He also is a worshiper of God. He is a God-fearer in the sense of this reverent, focus uh, of life on the living God and on his relationship with him. He is also uh, one who offers up to God acceptable offerings. So Noah is presented as a man who has the same sort of faith as Abel and, and Enoch, and yet there's also a development that comes with Noah. There is an advance in the significance of faith, not just his faith, but the significance of faith as such in terms of the essential role of faith in God's purposes, not just for us individually, but his purposes for the world. So Noah's faith was no more real and genuine or relevant than the men that have already been introduced, Abel and Enoch, and yet it had a greater purpose in a certain sense and a greater Impact in god 's intent for the world in the way that the text deals with him, his faith, like all the others that, that the writer is going to deal with, his faith pertained to himself and his own relationship with god, and yet at the same time, it was also Noah that is his faith was critical to his role in God's purposes for the world. And where I'm going with that, just by way of kind of putting a little thorn in your head at the beginning, is the way that I've already uh, spoken to this before last time, this idea of a legacy. In other words, we think of our faith as pertaining to our relationship with God, and that's not untrue. But ultimately, each person's faith plays an important role in his own time and circumstance in the outworking of God's purposes for the world. We may not think that of ourselves. We may not think our faith has that significance, but it does. Faith is a part of this legacy that is passed on. And we see in a very significant way, in a way that we didn't see with Enoch, that we didn't see with Abel, How Noah's faith was critically important to the role that he played in God's purposes for the world. But that is true for us as well. I'm going to pick this up uh, just going back again. Um, I'll I'll go back to verse 1 of chapter 11. And read through the seventh verse, and then we'll be also looking, if you want to put your thumb there, back at Genesis, where we're drawing some of this content today. The writer, again, is getting his content for his statements, the writer of Hebrews, from the Genesis account. But he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the giving substance to that which is hoped for. It, gives the, it is the verity or the authentication of things that aren't seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he yet still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the deliverance of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, so as i 've kind of done with these uh, up to this point, I want to lay kind of a background for understanding uh, this this person, Noah. the writer here treats all of noah's uh, life all of what takes place in not just a few verses like with Abel and Enoch, but four chapters in the book of Genesis. That Noah and the Noahic account are, are the, the main part of the record of Genesis up to the point of Abraham. And the writer condenses all of that down, the writer of Hebrews condenses all of that down to one uh, brief statement. But it's important that we open it up. Now, he focuses on key aspects of the Genesis narrative. But nonetheless, he condenses it all down to one statement. So we need to open that up a little bit more. As I said, Genesis commits four chapters to Noah and his life. He's actually introduced in chapter 5, his birth. But six, seven, eight, and 9 are the main chapters that deal with Noah. Then we get to... Uh, The table of nations that comes in chapter 10. And then we have the Babel episode. They're actually out of order for emphasis, but that's for a different day. But in that four chapters, even though there's a lot of content in Genesis dealing with Noah, it all really kind of localizes all of that in terms of this thing that we know as the flood episode. What the scripture deals with with Noah is all centered in the matter of the flood. The flood. As I mentioned, he is introduced at the end of Adam's genealogy and his Noah's genealogy becomes the next genealogy. And even in the way that he's introduced, it shows that, that the position of Noah, the text kind of making him be the climax of Adam's line is important. They form almost like bookends. The genealogy of man is bound up in Adam, but Adam is the one through whom the curse comes. The human calamity is bound up in Adam, but by the time we get to this high point in Noah, there is already a man through whom remedy is to come. So if you want to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 5, and kind of keep your thumb there or a bookmark or something, because we'll keep flipping uh, forward, forward and back. So as I said, at the end of Adam's line, which begins chapter five verse one, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Toledoth, the Generations of Adam. And then you move down here and it says, as you come down to verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. He's called a son before he's named. If you look at the way this genealogy flushes out, it's constructed in a way that puts uh, like a, a, a beam of light, a focus point on Noah himself. He's introduced in a different way. And when you read the text, you should be looking for these kinds of clues. They're not unintentional. So Lamech gives birth to a son. And recall again, this is not just Adam's line. This is Adam's line through Seth. This is the faithful line. He had a son. And he called him Noah. This saying, this one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed." Adam is the one through whom the curse is introduced, and remember, a key issue in the curse is the setting of a relationship of alienation between God's human creature and the world that the human creature was created to be image lord of. Man was created in God's image and likeness to rule over the works of his hands in God's name and in God's authority. And God said when... At the time of the fall, Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will bear. And that imagery of thorns and thistles becomes a key, key imagery in terms of the curse and God's promise even later through the prophets that he will renew all things. Instead of the thorn bush, the pine tree, instead of the thistle, the myrtle, right? It will be for the Lord's renown for a sign which will not be opposed. So God, the the curse is a curse on the ground such that now a principle of enmity governs the relationship between man and the created order. And already this far down the road, men have experienced that sort of toil and agony, a constant conflict with the ground such that all of man's energy and effort is consumed in warring against the world, warring against the ground, That God created to yield itself up abundantly, profusely, in harmony with His human creature. When Adam was charged with keeping the garden, it doesn't mean guarding it or lording it over it. It means that he is a steward, watcher, protector. He is God unto the earth and the earth yields itself up to man as it does to God himself. But human beings have lived in this place of strife and contention and toil and labor up to this point that now as Lamech gives birth to a son, a male child, he calls him Noah. The the root of that word means comfort or consolation. Comfort or consolation, not in there, there, it'll be okay. Sorry you're having a tough day. But comfort and consolation in terms of relief from the curse. And interestingly, again, that same language, my mind immediately went to uh, Isaiah 40, and the same root idea of comfort is used there. That last section of Isaiah that, that so outlines and, 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 and fleshes out the glory of what God will accomplish in his servant begins with, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her conflict has ended. The Lord has repaid her double for her transgressions. The promise of peace Not comfort in the sense of, again, a pat on the back. The Lord promises to comfort, to bring relief from the curse. And wasn't that the heart of the promise, the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3? A seed, a man, a son will come who will crush the serpent's head. From the time we get out of Genesis 3, God has made a promise that he will deal with this thing called the curse. And all we know is that it will come through a human being, an offspring of Eve. So in Noah, we move that revelation, that promise forward. That's why I said Noah's faith is of the same sort as Abel and Enoch, but it also stands in the context of God upping the ante or bringing further development, advancing the promise, making more clear. Genesis 3 says a seed will do this restorative work. In Noah, we we begin to see how this is actually going to take place. How will the Lord accomplish this? So Noah and Adam form bookends with regard to this issue of the curse. To Adam it is said, it's going to be miserably difficult for you. Nothing but conflict is going to mark your lives, your interaction with the creation around you. Enmity, hostility. The creation was created to be defined by these two things. Shalom, Shabbat. Peace and rest. The perfect, harmonious, interpenetrating goodness of God's creation. Harmony at all levels. Ultimately, even in relation to God. And all of that was shattered with the fall. The creation is at odds with itself. It's at odds with man. Man is at odds with all other men. People are at odds with themselves. And ultimately, all things are alienated from God himself. And all of what we call sin is just the outworking of that fundamental alienation, hostility, unbelief that the scripture calls death. The creation ceasing to be what God created it to be. So Noah's birth and naming predicted his role in God's purposes. We don't even know yet what Noah's going to do, but already Genesis wants us to see the significance of Of what this person will do. So, even when we come to the issue of the flood, which now begins to sort itself out, we have to think about that episode through the lens of the things I've just already spoken of. And people argue about, well, was it a global flood? Would it have to be a global flood? Well, when you look at how tall Mount Ararat was, and you know, all of these things that people, and how, wherever they get all those animals, and how they do, and all the things that we, we want to wrangle about ultimately end up distracting us from the real issue, which is what does Noah represent? How does he testify to the faithfulness of this God who promised to restore all things? So, as I said, the fall was more than the originating point of human sin. Often, even as Christians, we think, okay, what was the significance of the fall? Well, that's where sin started. Okay, well, that's not untrue, but it's woefully inadequate. And it really doesn't even tell us how to understand sin. It brought a creational curse, That's why I say all the time, the atonement that we tie to Jesus has to be seen as a cosmic phenomenon or we don't even understand it rightly. The problem wasn't just this thing we call human sin, but this problem of creational death, creational cursing, creational antagonism, groaning, futility. What the fall did was end the fundamental dynamics of the creation as God intended it to be, rest and peace. That was all done away with. It was all crushed to the ground with the fall. No longer does the, does the earth live in relation to mankind the way it did, but now all things are subjected to futility, alienation, antagonism, disintegration, and as you move from Genesis 3 forward, you see with the passing of human generations that those principles, in, in terms of the practicalities of human life, keep getting worse and worse. The principles don't change, but the manifestation of it does. It's like Romans 1 going from this to this to this to this to this. The fundamental human problem hasn't gotten worse. But as generations go on, the manifestation of that perversion of the human heart and the human mind, that alienation from God, starts looking worse and worse in human culture, in human conduct. And it's in the midst of that that God says, I regret that I created man. And it got to the point where God said, I'm going to destroy all of this. And that's where Noah comes into the picture. His own name was a prophetic foretelling of how he would function in God's purposes. He would be the one, the man, the son, the descendant of Eve raised up by God, to give relief to man under the toil of the curse. And he would do so by being God's human instrument in a supernatural, cataclysmic work of condemnation, destruction, and renewal. That's how the narrative treats Noah. And that means that even in treating him that way, it it intends that we look at that back through the lens, again, of what God promised in Genesis 3. We can't read the scriptures like uh, auto repair manual, where if you want to know how to change a clutch, you go to page 83. If you want to know how to replace a fuel filter, you go to page 33. It's not a how-to manual of a bunch of discrete texts of how to do this, how to do that, what about this, what about that. Here's a verse for this, here's a verse for that. It's the telling of the story of God's intent and design for his creation that ultimately finds its focal point in the Messiah himself. That's how Jesus can come into the world and say, all the scripture testifies of me. If you knew the scriptures, you would know me. So just a quick summary, then, before we look at kind of the details here of of that account of Noah. Noah and his faith, like Abel, like Enoch, like all of these individuals that are going to be presented in chapter 11, have have to be viewed, Noah's faith and all of theirs, that faith has to be viewed through the lens of that person's place in the salvation history and more than just his place, his contribution to the salvation history. It's not about these men per se, it's about what what is revealed through them. The contribution that they make by God's design in the working out of his purposes that reach their focal point and their actual accomplishment in the Messiah himself. So again, this isn't just a random list of the writer thinking, okay, well, here are some faithful people. Let's see, who could I name? I could name this guy, this guy, this guy. That's not what he's doing. He's echoing the scripture's own purpose and pattern and direction in telling its story. In that sense, Hebrews 11 is almost kind of a microcosm of the Old Testament story a story that's traced through the lives and the circumstances, the experiences of real human beings. And in a a most notable way, the corporate human entity that is the nation of Israel. As I've said before, so many Christians, if you say, okay, what's kind of this order? What's the sequence of, of God's saving purposes? Well, it's creation, fall, Christ, eternity, no, it's not creation, fall, Christ, eternity. It's creation, fall, Abraham, slash, Israel, Christ, eternity. If we don't understand Jesus and his restorative work through the lens of the Israelite salvation history, we really don't understand it. Go back and think about the gospel accounts again. How did they tell the story of Jesus? They tell the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Israelite salvation history. Noah, we see this continuity, a man of the same sort of faith as Abel and Enoch, but also a development, a kind of discontinuity, in that we see the significance, the contribution of Noah's faith in a way that isn't evident in those men who preceded him. So when we consider Noah's faith then, like I said, the writer really reduces this down to just a simple statement. It has a lot of moving pieces in it, but nonetheless, it's still just this one statement. By faith... By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things to come, things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. That's a very pregnant, dense statement. There's a lot in that. But the first thing that I want to note in that regard is that unlike Abel and Enoch, The scripture associates Noah's faith with a particular revelation and a particular obligation, a particular directive. We don't see that with Enoch. Enoch walked with God and God took him. Abel brought an offering, not one that was obligated, not one that was prescribed, but one that was just his own worship of God. But in the case of Noah, we see a faith tied specifically to revelation and obligation in view of that. There's a developing of this idea of faith and how it works itself out. And he summarizes this with that phrase, he was warned about things not yet seen. What was the revelation? What was the directive? He was warned about things not yet seen. Now, that's how the writer captures the whole thing of what you see in chapter 6 of God uh, uh, making himself known to uh, uh, Noah, explaining to him what he's going to do, what he wants Noah to do, how this is all going to play out, all bound up in a covenant, an arrangement that he binds himself to with Noah. But the writer of Hebrews simply says, he was warned about things not yet seen. And that really takes us back to verse 1 of Hebrews. What is verse 1 of Hebrews 11? What does he say? Faith gives verity, living or or, tangible substance to things not seen. Faith doesn't pertain to what we can see. It pertains to what is not seen. But most importantly, it pertains to the God who is and the God who has spoken. God made himself known to Noah in accordance with a specific revelation and a specific directive, and that's the focal point of Noah's faith. God revealed to Noah his intent to renew the corrupted world through an unprecedented, really even unimaginable, cataclysm of destruction that would bring purging and renewal. And ultimately, we should see, even in that water event, it should hearken, it should echo us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu wabohu, uninhabited and uninhabitable, covered with water. We're going back to a new creation event. Well, how did Noah respond to this? Again, a very brief synopsis. By faith, Noah, in reverence, prepared an ark for the deliverance of his household. Being warned in reverence, he built an ark for the deliverance of his household. And it really parallels the brevity that you see in Genesis. When you look at all of what God was requiring of Noah, the text simply says of him what? Noah did did according to all that God had commanded him. That's it. He did according to all that God had commanded commanded him and the hebrews writer says he built an ark he built an ark for the salvation the deliverance of his people neither one of those texts says anything about the ordeal the thoughts that you know the mental struggle the emotional struggle the physical struggle of doing what god called him to do it just says he did it And all that the Genesis does is really give us an insight into the character of Noah. And it lets us draw the inferences from that. Noah was a righteous man, upright in his generation, blameless man. He walked with God. God said, do this, he did it. It lets us draw our own inferences from it. But clearly it was a monumental challenge of faith. Noah had to believe God's covenant oath that what you see in verse 18 of chapter 6 of Genesis is not the same covenant that God makes with the creation after the flood. It's a covenant with Noah that pertains to this ordained relationship he's establishing with Noah pertaining to this delivering work, building the ark, doing this thing, uh, uh, taking him through, that he would be this deliverer, this instrument of God's work. It's a covenant with Noah in the sense that God says, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm establishing this with you. And so there is a faithfulness on the part of Noah that is bound to trusting the covenant that God has made with him. That God is going to deluge the earth with an all-destroying flood. Even if you say, God, why would you do that? How could you morally or ethically do that? It doesn't even address the question of how are you physically going to do that? Where's all the water going to come from? But he also had to believe, and this was probably even more difficult, that in God's covenant oath with him, that the obligation to Noah was that that deliverance this great ordeal that would bring purging and deliverance was going to come in the form of a massive ship, a covenant ark that Noah himself would have to build. He was to be God's instrument of condemnation and renewal, but through, by his conformity, his, his following through with what seemed to be an impossible task. I mean, I remember even being a kid and thinking, okay, you know, there's not a whole lot of trees in that part of the world. We don't know exactly where he was. Um, but, you know, in the Middle East, it's not, other than maybe the forests of Lebanon. That's a massive vessel when you look at the size of the ark, and he's not building it he's in a seaport, you know, with shipbuilding capabilities like they built the Titanic in Liverpool, you know, where they're, they're set up to build ships. He's building it inland on the ground. An unprecedented vessel. And then the obligation to supply its resource. For months and months and months of provision, not only for him and his family, but for all of the animals. Not just food, but everything else that's required. Beyond that, he had to convince his family that what God had told him he was going to do was actually going to happen. I mean, they'd have thought he was a lunatic. At the very least, they'd have thought, come on. I mean, how are you going to do this? Well, you're going to help me. Well, there's not enough of us to pull this off. Where are we going to get all the wood? Where are we going to, How are we going to make this happen? And then, beyond that, the, the arduous years of labor, year after year, month after month, with people watching this clown show in the middle of, the desert, building this giant boat because God's going to flood the earth and the mocking and the jeering that must have taken place to hold yourself in and believe God for things not seen. Wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. How can this possibly be? But the text says Noah walked with God. And what that means, again, as I said last time, is that he trusted the God who had made himself known to him and he trusted the God who had covenanted with him to do this and to have Noah be the covenanting party in this covenant to accomplish this work. And in that way, the writer says he condemned the world. It wasn't that the, the floodwaters condemned the world because everybody died. That's not the point that he's making. Noah's faith condemned the world. This persevering, disciplined diligence, whether he's actually, I mean, Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. And we imagine, you know, Noah standing there with his his tools in one hand and and crying out thus saith the lord like isaiah or something and i don't believe that's the point but the testimony of that faithfulness even if he never opened his mouth condemned the world for its faithlessness its faithlessness So that's, that's kind of the gist of what he gets at here, and obviously the Genesis account goes into a lot more detail. But I want to just conclude with this, again, passing statement that the writer of Hebrews has as he moves away from, from Noah. He says, he, by this faith, when he says by which, in context it means his faith, by which faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that accords with faith. That's how I'd like to end this today. Again, Noah's faith paralleled. It was consistent with all of the other individuals of faith that are listed. They all had this same devoted, reverent, trusting faith. But each one of these individuals lived out that faith, his faith in his own generation, according to his own circumstances, his own uh, uh, life issues. Everybody's life isn't Noah's life. Everybody's life isn't Abel's life. Everybody's life isn't Enoch's life. Each one lived out his faith in the context of his own place and significance in God's purposes. What makes Noah stand out at this point is that his Role, he was the first explicit picture or depiction or prefiguration of the seed promised to Eve. A seed was promised to Eve through whom the Satan and the satanic work would be overthrown. How's that going to happen? What's that going to look like? What form is this going to take? How's God going to do this? How will this seed? He's a man. How does he do this? In Noah, we begin to see a few more brushstrokes put onto that revelation. And that has to be the lens through which we understand not only the way Genesis presents Noah and what he did, but also even this statement here. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Genesis describes Noah as a unique individual. We all know the the beginning of the total depravity proof text in Genesis 6. Every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And God's assessment of the human race. But then here's this one man to whom he looks who finds favor with him. And it says Noah was blameless. He was an upright man in his own generation. The text wants you to see him as a singular man on the face of the earth. A unique and consecrated man. The point is not that he's not a that he's not a sinful man, that he's not a man under the fall. Just like Abel, just like Enoch, he's a son of Adam. Noah wasn't a sinless man. That's not the point the text is making. It wants though, it wants you to see him as unique among the human race. And his name indicates how it is that he is unique or or the significance of his uniqueness, as well as the purpose for the flood. Even though God says, I'm going to destroy everything that has breath on the earth, God's goal isn't destruction, is it? It's purgation. It's a washing of renewal. God's intent is not to destroy his good creation, but to renew it. It's not to destroy the human race. Noah's name, Noah, God says, or Lamech understands, that through this one, God will give rest to people from the curse. The point of the flood is not to destroy the human race. It's not to destroy the created order. It's to purge and to renew. Noah is the one who God raises up to give the world relief from the curse. As his deliverer, as God's appointed deliverer, and as a new Adam. You see this coming out of in chapter 9. When they come off of the ark, who are the human beings? Noah and his offspring that's it right Noah his sons their wives Shem Ham Japheth and the table of the nations then are all descendants of those three individuals and God says to Noah as he said to Adam be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth God is, in a sense, starting over. He's renewing his creation. Once again, covering the earth with water that order, that harmony might come out of that. So when the text says that Noah is a righteous man, we have to view him through that lens. It's not saying that he was a sinless man. Even in the fact that it says, as a righteous man, that by his faith he became an heir of righteousness. Well, how can you be righteous and then be an heir of righteousness? If you're righteous, you don't don't need to inherit righteousness. You already are righteous, right? I don't know if you've noticed that, but the writer makes much of this inheritance of righteousness. The point is this. God rewarded his faith with the inheritance that belongs to the faithful. The inheritance of true sonship that has now been realized in the Messiah. Noah, like all of these individuals, when the writer says in in verse 39, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Noah didn't receive that inheritance of righteousness until the Messiah came. Even though his faith was his righteousness in his generation, the promise, the inheritance of righteousness is the ultimate, is the promise of God of the ultimate righteousness of full Christiformity. That we would become as human beings totally, fully, exhaustively right. conform to the purpose for which God created us. So the text wants you to see Noah as the prototype of this seed who is to come. That's why it describes him and his relationship the way that it does in absolute terms. It treats Noah as a unique, singular human being in a world that's alienated from God, not because he's not also fallen, not because he isn't also a son of Adam, but because that uniqueness, that distinction of God's favor, that distinction of of a faithfulness in relation to God is critical to the typology of him being a prefiguration of the seed who is to come. If, that, if, if he isn't characterized in that way, then the, the typology doesn't work. It's just the same as we see with David. David, in some texts, is presented as a blameless man, and yet we know he was anything but blameless, right? The destruction of his household was tied to his own unfaithfulness, but but as a precursor, as a prefiguration of the Messiah, he's presented as the man after God's heart, the man who is blameless, the only son of Judah, the only royal descendant who who can actually function as a priest. You couldn't have priest kings in Israel, right? Well, why can David do that? Because of his typological role. David signifies the priest king who is to come. And it's the same thing with Noah. That's the point that I'm making. You don't want to take this in absolute terms and say, well, Noah was must not have been a sinner, but was he not a son of David or a son of Adam? How do we figure this out? The text presents him the way it does because, again, of that significance. Noah is presented as a man by his faith. And by the means of a covenant ark, the word here for, and and that's why ark is a good rendering, it's the same term that's used of the ark of the covenant. It's a vessel that is a container. It's not the word that means boat or ship per se, even though it was a, a ship. It's that which holds the significance of the covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, in a sense, contained things that represented God's relationship and intent for the world in and through Israel. The tablets, the manna, right? And this is a kind of ark, it's a covenant ark as well. It, rep- it, it, it was built according to God's covenant oath to Noah. Noah, by his faithfulness and by means of a covenant ark, was God's instrument of condemnation, deliverance, and renewal. And through that testifying faith, he indicted the world as false and obtained the inheritance that belongs to the true image children of God. Those who preceded him, but even more, those who would follow after him as coming from him as a new Adam. All of the faithful after Noah were his children, right? Noah's life, his walk of faith, if you will, made a crucial contribution to God's purposes and the disclosure of that culminating with the Messiah. Think of everything I just read And the writer understood this typology of Noah as it now has come in the Messiah. And I think he expected that his readers, his Jewish readers, would understand it as well. Let me read that again and think about what the text wants you to understand about Noah in relation to the building of the case for this seed to come and what it is that he would do. Noah, by his faith and by means of the instrument of covenant deliverance, the ark, he, Noah himself, was God's human instrument of condemnation, deliverance, and renewal. And in that work, there was the testifying of faith. And by that, he indicted the world as false and obtain the inheritance that belongs to all the true image children. Jesus himself also inherited the righteousness that is by faith. And I know that strikes us in a strange way, because we say Jesus wasn't a sinner. This is about how you get saved. The inheritance of righteousness by faith. Jesus was declared, manifest, substantiated, to be the Son of God with power, the true image son, by the resurrection from the dead, right? Jesus is the beginning of the legacy of human beings who obtain the inheritance. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. Well, so what? I guess that means I get to go to heaven. No, if we're children of God, we are heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of all he is heir to. Kings and priests to our God. Jesus is the first firstfruits of the inheritance of the consummate human rightness that is by faith. Jesus was the consummate man of faith who bound himself over to the Father's purposes for the world and his own role in that. And in that way, Noah, again, looking to how this pertains to Jesus, Noah becomes then, he becomes then, this testifier to not only those who preceded him, but those who would come after him. Those who come after him as coming from him as a new Adam. As it pertains to Noah himself, his walk of faith, which made this critical contribution to God's purposes, culminating with the coming of the great deliverer, even as Noah's own Life of faith pointed to that one. So also Noah now enjoys the inheritance that is bound up in him. Verse 39. All these died in faith without receiving the inheritance that was promised. So when the writer says, by his faith, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. He's talking about what has now come in the Messiah. As Noah looked to that one, so he has found his own inheritance in that one. And as I said last week, this is, as it's true of Noah, we're not asked to build an ark. We're not asked to be the beginning of a new creation in that sort of a way. But our lives, too, as unique as they are, each one of these individuals in Hebrews 11 had a unique circumstance, a unique obligation of faith even though the faith is the same our lives are each unique and yet our lives bear the same testimony abel witnessed enoch witnessed noah witnessed our lives also bear the same testimony when they are lived in faith according to our individual circumstances and obligation. And in that way, we become, too, a part of this great cloud of witnesses. We think our lives don't matter. We think our faith doesn't matter. Or we reduce our faith down to just, okay, I've believed in Jesus and now I'm saved. Doesn't matter if anybody else even exists. When the life of faithfulness that the Lord calls us to is to be The city on the hill that can't be hid, right? The light that shines. Our lives are very important. And we too, just as with Noah, as the righteous in Christ Jesus, will one day inherit the righteousness that accords with faith. The righteousness that is consummate Christiformity as true children and joint heirs with him. People often get stuck on this issue because they say, well, I thought when I believed in Jesus, I became righteous. I had his righteousness imputed to me. Why does the scripture talk about a future righteousness? It's this consummating of our humanness, the consummating of our human identity in the Messiah. Paul says to the Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And the issue with the Galatians, the the, the seduction there was that, yes, you Gentiles can come into the household of faith, uh, the household of God, the covenant household by faith in the Messiah, But to be children of Abraham in the truest sense, you have to be also bound over to Torah and circumcision. That's how you become Abrahamic sons. That was always the case. The Gentiles came into Israel by binding themselves to the covenant and becoming sons of Abraham by circumcision. That's the idea of keeping the law. And Paul says to them, understand If you receive circumcision, Christ is of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to the totality of Torah. He must become an Israelite. And yet that's not the way to be a part of the household of God. In that way, you have actually cut yourself off from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by Torah to show yourself to be a part of God's covenant household by, in effect, becoming a proselyte to Judaism. Contrary to that, we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We who are already righteous in the Messiah are waiting for the hope of righteousness, the consummating of the people of God. It's a huge theme in Paul's theology. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. And in the next chapter, he will say, Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. The only thing that matters is what? A new creation. To all who will walk according to that Torah that canon, mercy and peace be upon you, even upon the Israel of God. We too, saints, walk out our faith in the, in the confidence, in the reality that we have become sons of God in the Messiah, children of the Father, raised up in him, and yet we too live by faith. We live in the hope of the righteousness to come. The consummating of all things in the Messiah, the resurrection of the body, the renewal that will see God becoming all in all. We live in the hope, Paul says, of immortality. And so the walking out of our faith also is tied to bringing into the reality of substance giving substance to that which is not seen that which is not seen we're not just hanging on uh, hoping that we can continue to to do pretty good until you know we die and and go off to heaven we're walking out the reality of the life of Christ in us the the tree that is strengthened by the wind in the confidence that one day that tree will become truly, exhaustively, perfectly the tree that God created it to be, the hope of righteousness. Father, if I can pray nothing else for us today, I pray that you would help us to truly understand and grow in what it means to really Read the scriptures in the light of Jesus the Messiah. I know what a challenge it was to me many decades ago to be faced with this quandary of of what does Jesus mean that all the scriptures testify of him. But Father, it's so easy for us to really miss your glory that is in the face of our Savior to really not know him as we ought, to really not have the settledness and the and the and the consolation of faith that you intend for us to have, because we really don't understand who he is, what he accomplished, what the goal was of his accomplishment, if we only understand our Lord as a sinless sacrifice that we can be forgiven. We have so impoverished his work and we have really not given ourselves any basis for joyful perseverance in this life. We certainly are not able to live the Christian life in the way that you intend, the way that the Hebrews writer wanted his readers to walk out their faith. I pray that we would see, even in Noah, a more profound, more enriching, a more glorious portrait of this renewing, restoring, reviving work that has come in Jesus our Lord. A condemnation, a putting to death, a bringing to life. In the sure hope of the resurrection to come, the sure hope of the day when all things are summed up in him, that our God would be all in all. Lift our hearts and minds and give us a greater vision. Father, we do get so bogged down with so many things We become myopic people who can't see beyond today, beyond our circumstances, beyond our challenges, beyond the pressures. Allow us to truly be those who walk with hinds feet on high places. To commune with our God in the heavenly realm. Seated with all hope, all confidence, that what you've begun will be completed. The text doesn't tell us how Noah could accomplish such a monumental task. It simply says he did it. He walked out his days according to what God put in front of him. And we too, Father, learn contentment when we recognize that we can do all things in the Messiah who strengthens us. You have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the living, renewed knowledge of him. And I pray that we would meet our days with great confidence and great boldness, great enthusiasm, We have no sufficiency in ourselves as such, and yet we are sufficient for all things because our sufficiency is in you. May we be a people of faith, a people who live in view of the inheritance of the righteousness that accords with faith. We ask these things, Father, as always we do, with the confidence, with the hope, with the joy that are ours in Christ our Lord. Amen.